Father, we just pray this morning that you would speak to us. That Joseph and the examples he set this morning would be used for you to speak to our hearts and to encourage us into the beauty that you are, the strength that you have, and your magnificence. Encourage our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So in 2004, Hollywood produced one of the few good movies where it's actually educational and family-oriented. Perhaps some of you saw it, a movie called National Treasure. It actually had some historical value to it. And uh, we enjoyed that movie. And there was a scene in there, if you, if you uh, saw it, you'll remember. If not, I promise to be brief, where the hero, Ben Gates, finds out that there is a special map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And to see it, he needs these special glasses. And they're written, they were um, invented by uh, Benjamin Franklin. So he, he steals the Declaration of Independence, and he puts on these glasses. And if you remember the movie, he has to drop down these like special colors. And when he looks through these special colors of the greens and the blues, I forget, he sees this map. It's the real treasure map. And then he finds out where this monstrosity of a treasure is actually hidden. So without actually, you can look at the Declaration of Independence, but without these glasses, you couldn't see the whole story. I have a friend named Dwayne Miller, and I gave a very, very short devotional early this winter on this very passage in Genesis, and afterwards, at a speech and debate tournament, and afterwards, Dwayne came up to me and said, that's 50-20 vision. I said, what's 50-20 vision? And I said, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I'm like, oh, that's really good. Can I steal that? And uh, he chuckled and said, sure. So on the completely crazy chance you're listening, Dwayne, there's your credit but I've stole it. We are talking this morning about what I've labeled 50-20 vision. It comes from the book of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And in summary, it's the ability and the discipline, if you would, of looking through the lenses of God's providence when we see the events of life. Joseph's story that we see concluded here in Genesis 50 is a in essence, a textbook example, one of the great examples of God's providence, of how to see God's providence in the daily ebb and flow of life. Calvin defined providence as this, or not defined, but said this about providence. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Very high praise from Calvin. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. I actually made a small mistake when I gave Brett our Confessions of Faith. They were supposed to be in the Confession of Faith this morning. Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27. So I'm going to read it to you. I brought it along just in case I messed up, and I did, so I'm glad I brought it along. We're going to define providence. We're going to find what it's not. And then we're going to look at this passage. Question 27 of Heidelberg says this, What do you understand by the providence of God? The Catechism says, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, 
health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is a great summary of God's providence, that he is upholding all things and all events to the counsel and glory of his good will. And that's providence. Sometimes it would do us well to understand a definition by simply understanding what it's not. So here's three things that providence is not. First, in speaking in theological terms, it is not the same as predestination. Oftentimes, um, I find myself in a discussion with somebody on the doctrine of election. I get asked where to go to church, and that begins to... So when you get the doctrine of election, the very first question is always, what about John 3.16? It's always the first question. And when you work through John 3.16, that that's simply describing what people get when they believe. It's not describing who is going to believe and what if they're able or not. Once you get that, almost immediately after that is, well, aren't we then just robots? And I immediately then can explain to them that really is a different doctrine. The doctrine of predestination really is, in theological terminology, centered around that process by which someone names the name of Christ. God's providence is about all those things that happen during daily life. There's a difference. Now, they both stem from the whole concept of sovereignty of God. But there's distinctions, there's nuances in there. When you talk to a Christian and an Orthodox Christian, every Orthodox Christian will absolutely affirm the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's when you begin to think about it and take it to its logical conclusions that it gets a little more prickly, such as when God, if he is sovereign over his grace, that becomes a little more of a difficult issue. Or in this particular case, as we get to uh, providence, is God actually sovereign over the daily events of our lives? And in Joseph's passage, we see this. So it's first, it's not predestination. Just on a simple, if you're ever in, in a discussion with someone on the election, the doctrine of election and predestination, it's not the same as the daily walk. That's providence. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help us because it's still prickly to understand providence. But it is a difference. The second thing it's not is this. I think a lot of times we have a tendency when we think about the daily aspects of life to think that God has somehow created the planet in some kind of a machine where he simply has wound it up and put it in place. And so all the processes of life are just moving on. The tides come and go because it's just a system. And the sun rises and sets because it's just a system. Hurricanes come and go because it's simply part of the weather systems. God created them, it's hands off. And those things happen. It's very helpful to us because it allows us to not ascribe to God the things that are rather unpleasant. But we're about to look in a minute, is that what Scripture actually says? The doctrine of, excuse me, the heresy of deism is what we just described. Deism is this, that God created the universe created the heavens, and he took his hands off. And he set things in motion. And that is a way we can explain what happens without trying to attribute to God. It's called deism. Fundamentally, real quickly, the error of deism is easily seen in this. By doing that, you deny miracles, because God would then be directly intervening into his, crea- into his creation and into the processes. And by doing so, you no longer have a savior, because you no longer have a virgin birth, and you no longer have a resurrected man. 
So the error of deism can no longer be accepted as a viable explanation for what's happening around us. And one more thing it's not, and it was just clearly mentioned in the catechism here, it's not luck, and it's not chance. We say this as Christians all the time, good luck, and we don't mean it anything uh, by that. Uh, but here's the thing to understand. When we look at what happens in life, a lot of times we'll want to ascribe chance to it. We want to describe luck to it. For instance, I don't know what the number is. You've seen it. What are the chances the earth was created by a big bang? Well, one in some huge millions of millions of millions of possibilities. My friends, chance is an intellectually nothing statement. I heard R.C. Sproul say this several years ago, and it's always stuck with me, so I'm going to borrow it from R.C. Sproul because it's way better than I can uh, summarize it. If I had a coin right here, and my finger, and I flip that coin, we would say it's a 50-50 chance it's going to come up heads. Just chance. 50-50 chance. Well, no, it's not. It's just the chance is what we use to describe what we can't describe. Because if I had a machine that I could perfectly flick that coin exactly the same way, with the exact amount of foot pressure, with the exact same height, I could control how it lands every time. But we don't know how to do that. So we call it chance. We, we call dice a game of chance. Well, yeah, because we can't actually control how many times we those dice round. But if we could, we could make sure they come out all sixes every time. But we don't know how to do that, so we call it chance. Chance doesn't cause anything. Chance is an adjective. Chance is an adjective that describes something we don't know what it is. Until one day we do. I'm sure many, many, many moons ago, they didn't understand gravity enough to understand it. It was chance that something fell, perhaps. All it is is a descriptor. It's a nothing statement when it comes to causality. It can't cause the dice to roll. It doesn't cause the coin to flip. It just simply describes the results because we can't understand it. So when we look at the events of life, and we see things happening, to say that was happened by chance is intellectually void. It only describes the fact we don't know what happened. If we look back in our lives, and we see all the different ways in which something happened, we can see the string of events and how it got. It wasn't chance that happened. Chance just describes we didn't understand it. So providence is not predestination. Providence is not deism. It's not that God has simply wound something up and took his hands off, and it's not luck. So what is it? It is God exercising his control over everything all the time. Let me read to you, now there's about seven or eight verses here, let me read to you just a few verses that I chose, and they will describe God's intervening in everything from nature to human beings. Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46.9 For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel 
from a far country. I have spoken, and it will pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and who brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Matthew 10.9, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and none of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Matthew 6.24, look at the birds of the air. They never sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 24.7, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Ezra 1.5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Joshua 11.19, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Exodus 4.11, last one. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? There's just a few verses that tell us that God is actively involved in the simplest of things from a bird that we don't know where it is in the woods falling down and dying up to creating his purposes, including building his own temple. That is the providence of God. So let's review a little bit on how we got to this point in Genesis chapter 50 on Joseph. How did we get here? Now, we all remember the story of Joseph, but if you'll permit me just to refresh our memories just a little bit to how we got to actually to Genesis chapter 50. So Jacob has at this point 11 children, 11 boys. Now, as a, I should stop here for just a little bit. You know, men, especially us men, I don't know about you, but I've always, as, as we were raising our kids, found it rather um, curious that if you look in Scripture, there really isn't a lot of good examples of dads and how they raise their kids. It seems like almost all the examples in Scripture of fathers is what not to do. Now, I don't know if that's simply because God wanted us to look to Him as our Heavenly Father and therefore get the perfect example, but it doesn't really seem like when you think of all the examples in Scripture, that there's a lot of good examples of dads. Jacob doesn't seem to be laying a good pattern here. Another thing about Scripture, and again, I'm stealing from R.C. Sproul on this one, you can kind of know that the Bible is true, if for nothing else, to see how it treats its heroes. For Greek mythology, you've got, you know, Thor with some hammer and all this. But in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we see all their warts. There's nothing hidden. We see all sorts of, of stuff 
that's very unpleasant among all of our patriarchs of the faith. Jacob is no different. So we start out the story with Joseph, find out that Jacob's playing favorites with his children, and everybody knows it. Joseph goes out at age 17 with his robe and begins to brag. Well, bragging is the right word. He begins to share the dreams he's having, which clearly are interpretation. Oh, by the way, brothers, you're about to bow down to me. So his brothers are so full of hate, again, it's somewhat of a dysfunctional family here, so full of fate, their answer was, instead of hearing this dream, let's just kill him. And they meant it. Let's just kill him. So they get ready to kill him, and one of the brothers in the said, why don't we just dig a hole instead and throw him in it? Because he was had this little secret plan to get him out of it. Okay, throw him in the hole. Oh, you know what? Why should we not profit off of this? Let's sell him to slave traders. So here come some slave traders. They sell him off. Down he goes to Egypt. Well, now he finds himself working for the chief of the uh, police, the head of the guard for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh figures out that Joseph is a really good administrator. Promotes him to run the whole household. Has multiple people working for him. Things are going great for Joseph until apparently he was a handsome young man. And uh, the first of the Me Too movements comes out. And Mrs. Uh, Potiphar decides to make an advance. Joseph pushes back. He gets thrown in prison for being falsely accused. Don't know how long he's in, but it's a while. While he's in there, he meets two fellows, the cupbearer to Pharaoh as well as the baker to Pharaoh. They have a couple dreams. Joseph interprets them. One's a very not pleasant dream and one's good. They come true and Joseph says, would you please remember me while you're in, while I'm in here when you go to see Pharaoh? Absolutely. Do they remember him? No, they do not. So he's stranded in jail for a couple more years till finally Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret. Nobody can get it. And the survivor of the two says, cupbearer says, hey, there was a Hebrew in jail that might be able to interpret that because he interpreted my dream. They bring, they bring Joseph up. He interprets it and tells Pharaoh some good news and some bad news. The good news is you're about to have seven years of prosperity. The bad news is it's going to get really bad after that. There's going to be a big famine. Pharaoh recognizing the exact same thing Potiphar does about the phenomenal administrative skills of Joseph, promotes him to second in the whole kingdom. So now Joseph is second in the whole kingdom. That's important uh, for a bit later on. He has got a lot of power, and he absolutely does prepare the country for famine. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, up in the promised land, famine hits. They run out of food. Word gets to them that Egypt has food. So to make a very long story short, the brothers go down to get food, to buy food. Joseph manipulates them, reveals himself to them, asks to go back at dad. Eventually, the whole family finds its way down to Egypt, to the land of Goshen, which apparently was a fertile place, but you don't know for sure. But nonetheless, now Pharaoh and all of Egypt are taking care of the family. Eventually, Jacob dies. As part of the ceremony, Pharaoh funds the entire funeral process to go all the way back so that Jacob can be buried with his fathers. And all the way back they come. That's how we get to this point. So now we're Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. Look at it again with me. And let's jump to verse 18. Now they're back. Actually, you know what? Let's jump to 15 because I want you to see what they were thinking. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they still don't get Joseph. They think, after they came down and Joseph has put his hand out and helped them, not just a little, he's helped them a lot. He's funded them. They even have people to help them with the pasturing. He's fed them. He's clothed them. He's wept with them. He's taken them back. They think he's, a, they're worried he's going to exact revenge. They wait till dad dies to ask for forgiveness. But they think revenge is a possibility. Joseph has shown absolutely no tendencies towards this whatsoever. But yet they think it. That motivates them. So, they send a servant first. They don't even have the, uh, the guts to do it themselves. Now, I don't know if that's a cultural thing or not, but they didn't have the guts to do it themselves. They send a guy. They send a messenger asking Joseph to forgive. Then they come themselves and ask Joseph to forgive them. And here is one of the most remarkable verses in Scripture that help us see the providence of God. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here's the 50-20 vision. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This morning we're just going to simply think about that one phrase. God meant it for good. Next week we'll go a little bit deeper in the entire verse. But for this morning, God meant it for good. That Joseph looked back on all that had happened and said, God meant it for good. I wonder when Joseph actually first got that 50-20, if you would, vision. I wonder when he figured it out. There's no way to know. At age 17, his faith clearly could have been strong enough to understand when he was thrown in the pit. But do you think when he was in the pit, the scriptures say there was no water in there, it's a dry, sandy pit, he was in there feeling real good about everything, going, eh, God's got, do you think that was, I don't know, I'm guessing not, but I don't know. How about when he was yanked out of the pit and probably tied with rope to the back of a cart and walked in the hot desert all the way to Egypt? I wonder if then he was thinking, oh yeah, God's got all this figured out. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe at Potiphar's house, maybe the first glimpse, because now all of a sudden he's in charge. He's running the show. He's thinking, oh, that's what God had in store for me. Until, of course, the Me Too movement hits, and now he's in jail, falsely accused, for years. Once again, I wonder if God, if he sees the 50-20 vision of God is working out all things that's happening to Joseph for good. I wonder if he thought it then. I actually think by then, he did. Because in, in the story, there's a very strange thing he says, when he says, remember me when you go to Pharaoh. Now, why would you do that? I mean, we don't know. Again, we're speculating. He could have been simply looking for a presidential pardon to get out for something that was unjust. Or he could have already known through dreams and vision that God is working out all things for good and I have a role to play that's not yet done and involves Pharaoh. That's my suspicion. That by that time he knew what was happening. And he knew that he had a bigger role to play in God's redemptive plan and he knew that involved Pharaoh. That's just my own theory and I don't know that to be true and be careful here when I say that. But nonetheless, do you think when he finally understood what a 50-20 vision was to see God's hand working 
and that God means it for good, do you think that made the suffering easier? And I think it did. I don't think it makes it go away. But I think it makes it easier because it's a rock you can tie to. It's a stake in the ground that you can nail in and tie to and say, no matter what's going on, I believe whether the sparrow falls from the sky, God is in control of all things and he is working this out for my good or for good in general. Excuse me. In this passage, I see two benefits I want to share with you before we close of having a 50-20 vision that we see directly from the life of Joseph. Benefit number one, contentment. Joseph, if you think about the story and all that we see, when you truly embrace the, the providence of God, brings about contentment. Think about this. When I left for college, I was homesick. Um, I know Betty, when she left for college, she was homesick. Age 17 is when Joseph was sold into slavery. That's roughly the time you go to college. There is not one example in multiple chapters, nothing of Joseph being homesick or wanting to go home. By the time the story catches him here in 5020, he's got a wife and kids living in Egypt. When he's in charge of Egypt, remember, second in charge of all of Egypt, there's no indication, now this seems odd almost, there's no indication that he even sends a messenger back to Jacob to tell him he's alive. He totally accepts the circumstances he's in and doesn't try to manipulate it. I think if I had, I don't know how the letter service worked then, I think I'd send a letter saying, hey, Dad, because obviously he and Dad had a great relationship. I'm still alive. I mean, his brothers and their treacherous hearts kept the secret safe for 20 years. By the time we get to the story, it's probably been about 20 years. Joseph was roughly, because he takes over at age 30, seven years of famine, or seven years of prosperity. So he's probably 37, 38, 39, something like that. It's been 20-some years. The brothers, all of them, how do you do that? Kept that secret. Even Reuben, who was trying to find a way to bail him out, kept it secret. Nobody told Jacob. Jacob, for 20 years, thinks he lost his son. He's living through that pain. And Joseph doesn't even send a note. That's contentment. He knew where he was supposed to be, and he appeared in, in no way to try to manipulate it. Now, practical application. How does that apply to us? If we have a 50-20 vision, or we're working on that discipline, because no one's perfect, if we're working on that discipline, will not our circumstances and our burden seem just a little bit lighter? Or... Very late. Will not the problems at work, the job, the frustrations, will not that be just a little lighter? Will not that boss, he or she, that is really rough on us, seem just a little lighter that, you know what, God means it for good? Will that not help? Will that not ease the load? I... In this room of 100 people, 75 people, the suffering that we've gone through in this room alone, I don't know. But we know God is in control. And the sparrow doesn't fall. And will that not help us to be content with the circumstances we're in?
The second point, and then we'll conclude. Forgiveness comes easy with a 50-20 vision. Now, I have a, as the older we get, I think I've, we've learned that when it comes to families, because this is a family thing with Joseph, there is no such thing as a perfect family. Anybody have a surprise on that one? It seems like all of us have our degrees of dysfunctionality, right? Immediate family, and then of course there's extended family, and there's always some kind of rub going on. But it seems like the pain that's caused within family is deeper. It seems to hurt a little bit differently. It seems to last a little bit longer. So here's Joseph standing in front of them, his entire life uprooted and changed. They literally tried to kill him. And when they threw him in the pit, they went over and sat down and started to eat. They couldn't have cared less about him. He's sold into slavery. He's put in jail. And they finally come to him and ask for forgiveness. And it comes quickly. He doesn't even hesitate. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Get up. Because they throw themselves at him. Much like Peter did in, in the Acts when people came and fell at Peter's feet. It's like, but my God, get up. Exact same thing Joseph does. What a reaction. Men and, and uh, parents in general, our families, a little practical application here as well too, our families really need to cultivate an understanding of forgiveness. Your children need to hear their parents ask for forgiveness. Parents need to teach their children to ask for forgiveness. And there's a big difference between saying, I'm sorry, and saying, would you forgive me? There's a big difference. I'm sorry should be reserved when you break the china. Oops, when you break mom's favorite vase, that's when you say, I'm sorry. There was no intent. It was an accident. But when sin's involved and transgressions are involved, it's hard to say, would you forgive me for losing my temper? But families, we need to teach our children, parents, we need to teach our children how to say, forgive me. And the best way to do it is do it yourself. I, uh, my parent, my children, sadly, have heard me say that many times. My wife has heard me say that many times. You have to lead. But they have to say it too. I can only imagine in Jacob's family, had there been more attitude of forgiveness, would there have been any change? I don't think so because they sold him out. But when they come and ask for forgiveness, Joseph had clearly learned how to give it. And he gave it. You know, do you remember in the story where we read here when the servant comes and says, your brothers are asking for forgiveness, Joseph's reaction is what? He cries. He weeps. Then his brothers come. What was the crying about? I'm, I'm again supposing, I have a feeling that's simply reconciliation, unity finally. For 20 years, he wondered about his dad. For 20 years, he had to work through the fact his brothers sold him off and not be angry. And so finally, to have his brothers come to him and say, forgive me. I have a feeling that just broke him down. Because he now knows that for all these years, he's restored to his family. Another lesson here for us, especially parents, but even spouses, is don't get hung up in the concept of forgiveness. Don't get hung up on the other person's motives. 
For the scriptures tell us, right here in verse 15, they thought he was going to exact revenge on them. That was their motive for coming to forgive. It wasn't a brokenheartedness over what they did. When they first, several chapters before, they first meet Joseph, there's a there's some crying going on between Joseph and Benjamin, and there's some talk going on, but there sounds like there was no asking for forgiveness when they first met him. After all they had done, he's got all this power. Now they're afraid of him. So now they come and ask for forgiveness. And you know as parents, what are we going to say when our kids say that, right? Well, the only reason you're saying I'm sorry is what? What we say? Because you got caught, right? Oh, you got caught. That's why you're asking for forgiveness. Don't downplay that. Because you know what? If we believe in God's providence, why'd they get caught? They got caught because of God's providence. And God oftentimes uses circumstances, and we are part of those circumstances, to bring about repentance in different ways. And one of those is to catch you. There's been many times where that is all it takes. You grant forgiveness, not withhold it based on what you think the motives are. Because Joseph didn't withhold the forgiveness because, or uh, yeah, excuse me, he didn't withhold the forgiveness because they were afraid of him, and that their motivation wasn't pure. He forgave them, and then we see after that the very last few verses. It appears that they actually finally was unity. What's our application? We've got a couple there. Don't don't get hung up on the motives. We as Christians. Our daily walk has to be surrounded by forgiveness. We pray this morning, forgive our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. Forgiveness is a natural part of life. It's faith and repentance is the Christian life. Repentance is forgiveness. We have to ask it all the time. We're going to be, today going forward, we're going to be on both sides of the forgiveness equation. We're going to be asking it, and we're going to have to be granting it. But if we have a 50-20 vision that whatever happened there, if you're the man, one who has been offended, God was using that for good, the forgiveness gets a little easier. It doesn't make it go away right away, especially if the pain is deep. You can't walk up and somebody go, oh, God's in control, and that doesn't make it go away. But that's the stake in the ground that you have to put in and tie to and say, God meant it for good. I don't know how. Maybe not yet. God meant it for good. Next week, we'll dive deeper into this, uh, especially the whole verse, uh, the first part of that, you meant it for evil. We'll delve into that a little bit more. But today, as we conclude, if I can encourage you to go out with that 50-20 vision. Begin to think about it. Begin to work on that discipline. And I'll leave you with this, which is the Heidelberg Catechism. The next question it says, under what do you understand by the providence of God? The next question, as we conclude, is, chat, is question number 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And I'll answer this in conclusion. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Let's pray. Father, how magnificent it is to know, even though we don't understand it, that your ways are higher than ours, that you are in control of all things.
and not a single sparrow falls from the sky without your allowing it. And that every bird that we see today, you are feeding. And if you do this for the sparrows, how much more for us? Help us, cause us to grow and encouragement that you are indeed in control of all things. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.